So I want to welcome everyone to our Tactical Sciences Network podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with the folks from the Mind Reuse Animal Drug Program. Uh, it's an extensive program that touches a lot of different species that we care about. Uh, the Tactical Sciences Program is... Uh, is an effort on our part to, to grow together and to link some of our programs that deal with very applied aspects of our pest control and biosecurity spectrum. So here we are today, and, and I'm just gonna call on our, on our panel members to, uh, to introduce themselves and share with us a little bit about the role that they have in the program. John Babish, let's start with you. I've been talking with you about uh, MUADP for quite some time. Yes, thank you, Marty. Uh, my name is John Babish, and I currently serve as the national coordinator for the program, uh, but I actually started back in 1982. Uh, I was one of the founding members from the Northeast. I was a Northeast regional coordinator in 1982 uh, when the program was first funded. Uh, and serving out of the Northeast, I work primarily uh, you know, through the Cornell uh, area, but try to keep everybody uh, across the nation involved in, in, the, in minor uses. That sounds great. Uh, so Ron Griffith, tell us a little bit about your role from Iowa State. Yeah, I'm an instructor or teacher at Iowa State University. I've worked here for, I think this is my 44th year. Uh, so I'm one of the old guys, both at the university and uh, in the program. Uh, I'm the, basically the North Central Region Coordinator for the minor use animal drug program, but I uh, work uh, and have had projects throughout the U.S., except for the Northeast where Rod works. So Rod, tell us a little bit about your part. Yeah, so I'm an assistant research professor. And so my role in the program is both as a sort of a coordinator and I work uh, closely with the aquaculture industry but also conducting studies um, is actually another big part of my role. And that has been uh, basically with therapeutics of fish. Uh, I've been focusing lately on the marine side um, to complete some uh, sedative studies. It's been the, my latest series of projects. Well, certainly in, in marine species, there's been lots of questions about the use of therapeutics. So we'll get into that a little bit maybe as we go along here. We also have two folks with us from, from federal agencies that work with the program. Amy Omer is here from, from FDA. Uh, Amy, uh, tell us a little bit about your role with FDA and how that fits in with, with this program. It's kind of, a, kind of an odd uh, program in that we've had USDA involved and FDA is also a part of the program. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, <clears throat> my name is Amy Omer. And um, as you said, I work um, in the Center for Veterinary Medicine at the FDA. I work in a small office called the Office of Minor Use and Minor Species Animal Drug Development. And that office came about um, as part of the MOMS Act. And we'll get into that a little bit later, probably. Um, and our office exists to help incentivize um, the approval of drugs for the for minor species and minor uses, so underserved animal populations. Um, and what I do with the program is I work with them um, to help them understand the regulatory process within the FDA and, and help them to be successful through that work. Great. And, and then Tim Sullivan, you're also here with us and you're with USDA NIFA, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Uh, tell us a little bit about your role with, with USDA and the program. Thank you, Marty. So yeah, I am a national program leader at NIFA in aquaculture and animal health. 
I'm also the newest member of, of this group. So I've been with NIFA for 11 months and primarily I act in a support capacity for the minor use animal drug coordinating committee, I think is what it's officially called the multi-state. Uh, and I serve as the NIFA liaison to that multi-state. So that's sort of where I fit in. And I manage the some of the competitive programs that some of the studies that this group engages in also are supported through or can be supported through. So that's one of the ways that, that funding can find its way to this group is through competitive support that's managed through, through NIFA's programs. I would assume the aquaculture program and maybe through the, the AFRI program, the agricultural food and uh, uh, research initiative. Yes, so yeah, there are a few priority areas within AFRI that uh, can support this work. The major one is the Diseases of Agricultural Animals, A1221 program. So there are a few uh, priority lines that deal with uh, minor use drugs and minor use drug coordinating networks. Yeah, therapeutics are really, are really important as we're looking at all kinds of animal species, just as people like to have therapeutic options. Uh, we like to have healthy, healthy options in our food sources as well. So, Amy, you touched on the MUMS Act. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the mum, it, MUMS, the word? So, yeah. <laughs> so, the MUMS Act, it's so it, that acronym is Minor Use, Minor Species Act. It was an amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And it came about because um, the FDA producers, um, the, the uh, animal health industry understood that there were not sufficient number of safe and effective products available for certain uh, segments of the animal population. And so that office came about um, to help address that issue. And so you can kind of see how uh, my role in this program sort of dubs, dovetails into the mission of the office. There are so many overlaps with the, uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act because that has had tremendous impact and influence on, on pesticide legislation that's happened through the years post that, uh, post that legislation. So um, great deal of overlap when we're start starting to talk about biosecurity and talking about the safety of our food supply uh, and the ability to assure that we have food security uh, and not some uh, event that might wind up limiting the availability of some food source that we that we've come to depend on. So um, when I think about minor species, um, we've got quite a spectrum here. So we've talked about aquatics. We've got we've got some some bird species. I don't know if we refer to all of those as poultry or not. I don't know. Is an ostrich poultry? Um, <laughs> But, but certainly game birds are in that, in that uh, uh, realm. And Ron, you've worked with, with game birds. So uh, you know, what kinds of things are we looking for when we're trying to look at, um, uh, let's, I'm gonna stretch and call them exotic species that we're, we're trying to manage in, in production systems. Uh, I can give you some examples. Uh, for instance, in the game bird industry, the pheasants and quail, uh, have, there is a need for anthelmintic because they were parasitized in the case of pheasants with a uh, tracheal worm, got into the trachea and uh, it's called the blood worm. And it caused up to 40% 40, 40 mortality due to respiratory failure in some of these bird 
populations that were farm raised. So that would be one example. And there's a project ongoing right now down in Texas. Uh, we're working with Texas Tech and an individual down there uh, to um, control eye worms. They get into the eye of the uh, quail and they slow down the response time so that the uh, quail are subject to being, being killed by uh, uh, hawks and eagles out there. So those are the types of things that we've been working, working with with uh, game birds most recently. Uh, Paris, um, we've done work with Lasalicid uh, and uh, for coccidia stats and other uh, projects that have dealt with those things. So there are some specific projects with game birds that we, we have had some big, um, big impact with, I think. Uh, when you mentioned Texas Tech, I have a nephew that uh, was a, a wildlife biology major at Texas Tech. And he, as an undergraduate, he got to help on a project with feral emus. And so you know, think about some of these exotic species that are out there. You just never know what you're going be, gonna to be dealing with. So, so Rod, you're talking about uh, uh, some of the some of the projects that you work with with fish species. Um, are those in are those in in uh, pond production or those in in lakes and oceans? And how, how do you administer uh, therapeutics in those kinds of environments? Well, it's definitely a challenge given the number of species that we're using. So the latest uh, studies I've been doing is trying to find an alternative sedative to use with fish and I'm concentrating on marine species because a lot of the data has already been collected for freshwater species. And so those quote sections are complete on the freshwater side and they would like to have a, a sedative that could be used in all fish species, which is, a, you know, that's a big accomplishment. So I, I've spent the last few years working on uh, striped bass, uh, Florida pompano, and, and it looks like I'm going to use uh, maybe yellow clownfish as, as an ornamental species. Just, you know, it's not a food fish, but it's definitely one of the top species being raised around the country now are these clownfish once they, you know, learn how to do that in captivity. So it's this, the studies that I do have been focused on just target animal safety studies. So the safety for the fish, but, but we'll get into the other types of studies that it's done, you know, there are human food safety studies, there's efficacy studies, those are the kind of things that, that Ron is definitely involved with more than I have been here at Cornell, at the veterinary college at Cornell. So John, uh, when we're looking at, at some of these projects that are out there, who's doing the work and, and how in the world do we pay for it? Some of it's coming from, from grants from the federal government, but it seems like this must be some fairly expensive work to try and conduct. Yes, it, it, it depends on the type of study. As you mentioned that there are uh, basically four uh, types of studies that are required for an approval, uh, but uh, originally the program was a line item on the, on the uh, congressional budget. Uh, we also received hatch funds in the past. And, and as Rod mentioned, we received funding from uh, the minor use, uh, minor species program. Uh, and we also receive a good deal of in-kind support from the producers. You know, for example, in efficacy studies and target animal safety studies, 
the in-kind support from the producers is, is much greater than the, than, the, uh, than the cost that the program puts into the studies. They basically supply uh, the facilities for performing the work. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, when you get into human food safety studies where you have the very sophisticated analytical requirements, then the program is required to put in more funding. And so it's a balance between the two and you know, what, what's available at any given year will, will determine which types of studies we perform on what species. I think probably we, we have some similarities here with minor use in, in plants and animals in that the manufacturers often can't justify the total cost of the studies um, because of what the market is for, the, for that product at the end. So I'm assuming they contribute some, but they're not the major, necessarily the major contributor. It's a, it's a common good issue that we're, we're dealing with in trying to assure that we have that food product or that um, uh, I'm not sure pet, I guess you could say if, with clownfish, I don't know. Um, that uh, is, by the way, Rod, is that a Finding Nemo thing that clown, clownfish are, are uh, of great interest? Um, that's probably why they're so popular for sure. But um, I've been sort of avoiding actually using that species just because of the, maybe the grief I would get from the students, because obviously we <laughs> sacrifice some of these fish during the studies. And so... But it's still, it's a, it's, it's a major ornamental species. And if we're gonna have something available for food fish, we might as well just cover all fish and get something that the FDA will approve. And so I think the collection of the data is, will contribute. Well, certainly, certainly there's a, a huge um, array of, of tropical fish species out there that people raise in, in uh, you referred to them as ornamental. Uh, I suppose I, I never thought about that as a way to describe it, but, uh, but certainly hobby species and, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so when we're looking at generating all, all the data that comes out of this, where does, where does the data go? Is there a repository somewhere where we store this kind of data? Uh, I don't know, maybe Amy, maybe is that an FDA pro, um, project? Yeah, yeah, so... Um... So that you know, the typical project as Ron and Rod have described, the, the re they're the researchers, they'll actually conduct the studies. The studies are generally um, done to a protocol that would have gone through FDA review. Um, and so there's a lot of back and forth and communication between the researcher and the FDA to ensure that once the study is actually conducted, the data from that generated from that study will answer the scientific questions that need to be answered to support an approval. When that data is completed, it does go to FDA for review. Um, the approval is sort of broken up into what we call technical sections. Rod has already sort of alluded to that. Um, the four technical sections that the program generally addresses for any particular project is again, the target animal safety, the human food safety, uh, the effectiveness so that it doesn't actually do, do what purports to do on the label of the product. And then we also have to ad address the environmental impact of the, of the use of the product. Um, so as we generate those data sets, they get submitted to FDA, reviewed. Um, hopefully we're going to get a technical section complete letter is, what, is where the agency um, tells the program that that particular technical section is complete. When it is complete, because this is a publicly funded program, 
Um, that sits in what we call a public master file, which is accessible to anyone um, that wants to see it. And so all of the work that we do in this program is uh, publicly available. And as those, again, those technical sections become complete, we aim, you know, get to an approval. Um, where the manufacturing sponsor comes in is, is that manufacturing piece. You know, they're the ones that are gonna be producing the product to the standard that the FDA needs to see. So we're generating the data uh, for safety and effectiveness and pairing it with that manufacturing information from the, from the pharmaceutical company. So it truly is a partnership between public and private. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of how the data moves through the system. So I'm curious, and I'm not sure who the best person is to answer this, so jump right in. Uh, I wonder about formulation. So you know, I think about all these different species, and the delivery mechanism must, must vary for some of them. So are, there, are some of the studies just looking at formulation and delivery of, of product to, to establish, I guess, efficacy, prove that it does work, and that you have minimal environmental effects? I'll, I'll jump in initially here. I think most of our projects are actually um, in where a product has already been approved in a major species. That gives us a lot of really critical information. We already know a lot about its safety um, because of that work that's been done in the major species and it's already a manufactured product. So we augment, we leverage that already existing data. And so like a perfect example would be, let's say it's an amphalmintic that's already approved in cattle and the sheep industry approaches us and the sheep industry is in real need of amphalmintics right now. And they come to us and say, well, could you do this work and get that minor species on that label that's already approved in cattle? That's exactly where this, that's sort of the sweet spot for this program because we can leverage data and get those safe and effective products in the hands of the end users of those sheep producers that don't have a lot of options. So certainly in some species like that, it's going to be easier, easier to do it moving from cattle to sheep, but moving from cattle to trout uh, maybe is a completely different thing. And I don't know, Rod, what is the, you know, what's the major species that you might be moving products to, uh, to from, from to find their way to minor species? So the major species in the aquaculture industry, if that's what you're asking, are I guess that I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're rainbow trout, Atlantic salmon, uh, certainly channel catfish. The the industry is actually using a, a hybrid now between a blue catfish and a channel cat. That's becoming the sort of more uh, I don't know vigorous or more disease resistant species. Um, so those are those are just three of the majors, but there's hybrid striped bass, there's tilapia, you know, you could literally name right now probably a hundred species if you were thorough being raised around the world. You know, probably there's a dozen or so in the U.S. where there's, you know, focus on things. And one of the big things is the government is encouraging the establishment of these marine aquaculture facilities. So obviously the the Atlantic salmon are being raised in the ocean already, right? But you're, you're now going to talk about some other species that will, aren't on the labels. You know, you may have, say, an antibiotic that's labeled for trout or catfish for a certain disease, but they're not, they're not labeled. You do not have permission 
uh, to use them in say a marine species like cod or barramundi or striped bass. So that work will have to be done to get those therapeutics approved for the industry. And so. I think John, that kind of gets to one of the points that we're, we're trying to emphasize with this program is that we're trying to find safe and effective treatments for known issues on these species that we want to try and cultivate. Uh, am, I, am I capturing the program right there? Yes, exactly. And one of the one of the issues, you know, in the beginning of the program, when we went out to producers, especially in these uh, uh, sort of niche, very niche markets uh, like emu and uh, and uh, catfish in Mississippi, uh, they relied quite a bit on uh, word of mouth. One producer would say he had success with a certain uh, drug with a certain formulation at a certain dose at a certain time of the disease and that seemed to explode. Uh, things have gotten even worse now with social media. Uh, and the example from uh, uh, recently with the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, uh, these mi misinformation or disinformation seems to fly very, very quickly. Uh, and in the past, we found that, you know, within certain, uh, certain agricultural practices, but now it seems to be exploding. Uh, from pets all the way through uh, aquaculture, game birds, and uh, mink and, and reindeer, so it, it is it is quite a problem. And and working with the correct formulation and the correct dosing uh, and getting that information out is is one of the primary purposes of the of the program and getting that information approved through CVM. So it's become you know much greater problem with social media than it has been in the past. CVM, who is CVM? Center for Veterinary Medicine, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, and you'd mentioned earlier uh, some funding that comes through the, through the Hatch uh, program at USDA. I was gonna jump in and, and add a little bit about that. that so Hatch is the, is the funding for the agricultural experiment stations at each of the state uh, land grant universities and uh, the 1890, uh, 1862 universities, and um, really those institutions control where those dollars go. So they might be going to your program or they might be going to some major use uh, uh, issue, whether it's animal health or production or any number of, of agricultural interests. Um, so, so Ron, when we think about, when we think about birds, um, are there disease issues, um, uh, parasite issues that are growing concerns that are maybe global concerns that we have to be watching for? Of course, uh, influenza, high, pathogenic, high pathogenicity influenza, a big issue there. And not just for the effect on the game birds, but they uh, oftentimes will serve as a uh, host and uh, amplify the transmission of some of those diseases into our major species. So we basically rely upon the producers to point out what's the big problems. And uh, that's served our uh, needs the best. Uh, we don't go looking for problems. Uh, <laughs> problems find their way to you, don't they? Yeah. We've had major species growers. Uh, the turkey industry lost the major uh, drug that they were using for uh, blackhead and turkeys. And uh, they came to us hoping for some help with that. But since there was a major species, we couldn't help them. We had to refer them back and there's really nothing available in the US 
for uh, blackhead and turkeys currently, as far as I know. So it's a big, it's a, it's a management issue that they had to overcome. So is that a disease that we might see overlapping onto other other bird species, or is it pretty pretty restricted to turkeys? It's fairly restricted to turkeys. Occasionally, you'll get other birds that have it. Uh, chickens can carry it. Uh, it has a complex life cycle through earthworms and uh, other uh, parasites, but it's uh, it's a protozoan parasite that causes uh, uh, severe disease in turkeys. High mortality rates if they get it. But it doesn't transmit. A lot of the uh, coccidia, for instance, are a major problem in uh, a number of animal species. And we use the same drug for them, but the coccidia species are different between pigs and uh, pheasants and chickens and turkeys. They're all different coccidia, but they're all mostly susceptible, depending on the management type, uh, to the same drugs. So we have the ability to uh, use data that were, for instance, generated in uh, cattle or goats and use those for avian species to some extent. So, so how long has, uh, has this program been around? So Amy, you gave a date on the MUMS Act and I didn't, uh, I didn't jot that down as we were talking, but this must have been around for 30 years. Am, am, I, am I guessing right? No, no, you're way off. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, according to my age, it's been around <laughs> 40 years now. Uh, the, uh, the program started with a, uh, a review. Uh, the uh, FDA with the then Bureau of Veterinary Medicine along with USDA in 1976 uh, conducted a survey of uh, the uses of uh, drugs in minor species. And at that time they found there was less than 25 uh, approved drugs for all minor species. The majority of that, about 20, uh, 20 drugs were approved only in sheep. And those, uh, those were lapsing at that time. And so from 1976, they concluded that the producers would not find this economically feasible to develop drugs for this minor species uh, grouping and decided they, to put together a minor species program. And six years later in 1982, uh, there was developed the IR4 minor use drug program. So it started out as a sub program under IR4 in 19. 19- and IR4 is the interregional project four, which is now restricted to, to plant pests. And they re- sometimes refer to themselves as the specialty crops program. Right, so, right. So it was 19, 1982 uh, that I became involved in the program. And uh, by 1993, uh, the program went out on its own and became, became an NRSP7. And at that time, we were both eligible for, we had line item funding. We were also eligible for hatch funds, but we, we, we existed primarily on line item at that time. So yeah. from 1993 uh, was, the IR, was the NRSP7 separate from the IR4 program. And NRSP is a national research support project, which is hatch funding off the top before there's distribution to the to the states. It basically all the states have agreed that they want to fund that project off the top. And it's never enough to funding to do the whole thing, but it's enough to provide some seed funding to to keep things to keep things uh, moving. 
So it's interesting seeing it for you saying 1976, because I think it was 1973 when we started seeing the development of integrated pest management programs on the, on the plant side. And so that was really the early and mid 1970s was really kind of a, a growth area for the recognition that we needed to be doing some things to figure out how to, to manage some of our problems better. Uh, provide a little more regulation and also provide, uh, well, the right kind of regulation and to provide um, the right kind of direction to, uh, to producers so that they're, they're using things that are, that are working and that they're safe and um, there's minimal impacts on the negative impacts on the environment. So, um, so when we're looking at, at, at these projects that you have, who does the work? Do you contract it? Is it concentrated in a few different labs? I'm guessing there may not be a lot of a lot of research labs that you can go to for crawfish research. I can start on that answer is that um, there used to be a few more investigators than there are now. Some of those we've lost due to just retirements. But I work um, right out of Cornell University and I submit my, my own proposals to get funded, but I don't even contemplate that until I've talked with people in industry. So there's an annual meeting in Bozeman, Montana that's hosted by the Fish and Wildlife. And for you know probably a several decades, th these people have been working on therapeutics for fish. And so there's a meeting there where everybody comes together. Um, what you would call contractors, but they're really mostly university or uh, agency-based investigators. And we come together with um, some of the aquatic uh, industry folks that su support the industry. So they will they provide not only veterinary advice, but um, they market uh, some of these products. So they'll be at the meeting couple of the big pharmaceutical companies are at the meeting. And then that's really where you engage with all those people and figure out what is the next, the next thing that they need. You know, what is it that they need to protect their animals? And it, that's where the projects that I've done have come from. And that's usually how it's worked in the aquaculture industry. There are several different committees um, and some of them cover every state in the country. And there's, um, Amy's gonna help me remember the name of the, the dog, they call it. The Drug Approval Working Group is one, right. of these, one of these many committees. There's the ADAC, another, I think is the Aquaculture Drug Approval Committee. So there is lots of communication within that group and I just, that's, that's sort of where I got integrated into, into doing this kind of work. So there must be a tremendous number of stakeholder and in industry groups that you're, that you're interacting with when you think about the broad range of species that you're looking at. I don't know who represents rabbits um, in, in the, the, the world of, of minor species, minor use. And, and that's, that's an interesting point because Rod, Rod covered very well like the aquaculture area. Um, the terrestrial area is a little bit more of a challenge because there is such a disparate group of folks. I mean, like you said, there's all, all everything from rabbits to bison. Um, and 
you know, engaging with all of those, um, ensuring that they all have a voice in what projects we would be taking on is a big ask for the group um, to be able to, you know, engage with those many folks. So in terms of, you know, who's doing this work um, in, of getting drugs approved for minor agricultural species, there is this group that's done very well kind of bringing folks to the table for the aquaculture side. And we really need to focus and have that same sort of game plan for the terrestrial minor ag species as well. And there's a lot of diversity there too. For instance, in sheep, you have uh, uh, the Midwest producers are, have basically um, small farm flocks and they uh, are more interested in reproductive issues. Whereas you go to Western uh, states, they're more of, a, more of a feedlot operation more open range. So you have different disease entities, different disease problems that are uh, at the forefront of some of these groups. And there's a lot of discussion and sometimes uh, almost rivalry for uh, some of the money that we need to do these projects. Well, you know, when you talk about sheep and, and goats, we often hear the conflict between the the meat and wool markets versus the show markets and where their priorities might lie and how the university should be directing resources. I've got to believe there, there could be some similar uh, concerns based on production practices and, and how many animals you've got in, in a confinement and what have you that could impact where priorities would fall. Correct. It's just a really, really diverse group of people and a very diverse group of uh, producers. Prioritization must be incredibly difficult when you're dealing with, with such a diverse group or such diverse groups. So go, go ahead, Ron. No, you go ahead. <laughs> so um, when I look at the uh, number of institutions, and, and I think Rod, you emphasized the retirements that are that are happening. Um, it, it must be really difficult to try and, and emphasize to institutions that we need to replace somebody that does, that may be the only one in the country that's doing work on pick the pick their minor minor species you know it uh, the only elk researcher in the in the country only elk disease researcher in the country um, I don't know how you do that are there are there um, arguments that you can pose to say this is a critical resource that we need to make sure we preserve you know one, one I can address that a little bit one of the issues with the program is that uh, uh, basically, I'm a teacher here at Iowa State University. I'm a professor. I teach two major classes in the veterinary curriculum. And um, over the years, my institution, Iowa State University, the veterinary college, really doesn't care whether I do minor use drug work or not. It's something that we did on weekends and nights, and, uh, and it's just an additive to our job. Also, it was a minor, a minor effort on the minor use, minor species. As far as the university goes, it was a minor effort. And it, yes. I'd get a grant for $100,000 and they wouldn't even mention it in the uh, research uh, uh, journals here. Uh, so we have uh, an issue getting support from our own institution sometimes, and that's been a major of, of fallback. Um, and that's probably why, in part, why we've lost two of our major regional coordinators in the last several years. They just did not have the full support. 
and it's different if you're if you're getting a grant for hundred thousand dollars, and there's no indirects or there's very little indirect, you're not really uh, uh, producing a lot for that university. Whereas if you're out there getting a five million dollar grant, then you're you're, you're somebody. You're uh, somebody that they want to keep. There's somebody that there is providing a lot of institutional support for that uh, college. So it's a it's so. Go ahead. So for our listeners, indirect costs are, are basically how the, how the university or the, the institution recoups some of the cost of operation, cost of doing business. Um, and that rate varies depending upon the kind of, kind of grant that you get. So it's important to the university, but um, the work is important to consumers and to the industries. And um, when you talk about minor use, it sounds like the dollar figures that you're, you're working with are relatively small in the world of grantsmanship, but uh, $100,000, I'm betting you can do a fair amount of work on some of these some of these species and some of these specific problems where you're just trying to take what's known and make it fit to uh, a, a new situation. It depends on the study. With the efficacy studies, I think John mentioned, we have to rely largely upon our producer groups. Uh, for instance, the FDA would require uh, an efficacy study to be done in, um, uh, let's say, 100 animals at Iowa State, 100 animals at uh, University of California, 100 animals uh, elsewhere in the U.S. So they 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 don't rely upon one um, place, one site, one group of animals to determine efficacy. So that becomes almost an impossibility for us to. I can't go out and uh, fund a goat milking operation with 100 or 200 dairy goats at four different institutions in the US and control the work that's done. So it becomes very difficult to do that without the, the um, producer groups kicking in and helping out. Uh, other studies like target animal safety I can do here at Iowa State University because we do, uh, we are exposing the animals to uh, different levels of a drug for instance, and we're just using normal animals. We're not trying to treat anything we're just using a, just trying to see whether it's uh, toxic to those animals or not. And with the um, human food safety, the analysis nowadays can be very, very expensive. And each of these studies, it, it requires a specific um, controls. Uh, the FDA looks at those studies very differently. And um, the funding and the, uh, the uh, collection of data tends to be very meticulous with all of those. So it's something that's very difficult for us to get a producer, let's say a goat farmer, that's somewhere even uh, five miles away from us. It's hard to have them uh, understand exactly the type of data that we're collecting. And any mistakes in that data or collection can jeopardize the whole study. Yeah, Certainly yeah, 100, 100 guinea pigs as opposed to 100 bison are a lot different. Yeah. Yeah, the other the other regulatory piece I, I would comment on there following on what what Ron's just shared with us is that two of the studies that we generally do that we've referred to the human food safety and the target animal safety. Those have to be done to a standard that's actually defined in the regulations called good laboratory practices. And that standard is such that it requires an enormous amount of commitment to these the what, what are there in the regulations. Um, and it may be slightly different than um, academicians are doing who have been doing research for many years. There's, there's a, a different type of uh, set of standards that, that they're required to, to meet. 
And so that's a new level of commitment in terms of the university. And, and again, it just adds to the, to the funding need um, to be able to meet those standards. Um, and again, those are the two, the human food safety and the target animal safety have to meet those standards. Um, the other thing that, um, that Ron had mentioned is that the breadth of what we need to show for effectiveness. <clears throat> we have to show it works not just in the hands of one veterinarian and one management system for, at this goat farm. We have to show that it works uh, across the nation in many people's hands in many different uh, sort of management practice settings. So um, the breadth uh, and type of studies that are required to be done for an approval are quite extensive and we are held to the same standard as um, any other major pharmaceutical company. Um, CBM will be flexible with us in terms of certain attributes of the study, but at the end of the day, we have to show it's safe, effective, uh, safe to be consumed by humans and safe for the environment. And so um, it's, a, it's a big commitment on, on the part of all the researchers. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you jumped on the the good laboratory practices. That was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask after Ron had had touched on that, because that requires additional efforts to make sure everything is calibrated, your your the maintenance of your equipment, the um, how up to date your equipment is, and the software that runs it. That's been something that some of our other tactical sciences groups have have noted that it's really hard to manage the cost of keeping up with the equipment that they have to have. So for example, we had some, um, some PCR equipment, some, some polymerase chain reaction equipment that was the, the standard uh, in the early 2000s, which the manufacturer no longer supports. So now all of our labs need to upgrade that equipment to equipment that is accepted by the regula regulatory agencies and all of a sudden we're staring at a big cost. And so all of your labs are dealing with some of those same kinds of, of problems and making sure that they have the instrumentation in place and they have the protocols and they have uh, the personnel to, to execute those protocols. So uh, GLP is, is a challenge uh, as we're trying to move forward and making sure we're doing this right and, and keeping, uh, keeping ourselves in line with the, with the standards. John, I think I, I stepped on you a little bit. You were going to mention something? Yes, I was just going to mention that, you know, as sort of a benchmark uh, as to how the cost of these studies has increased, uh, when the program first started back in the 80s, uh, we were uh, about, we were much more efficient than the pharmaceutical companies in adding a label claim. For example, we could do the work for about 80% of the cost of the pharmaceutical companies. But over the years, over these 40 years, uh, our efficiency has, has crept down to between 15 and 30% of the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, we're, we're on, on same cost as a pharmaceutical company to add a label claim. And when you think about, you know, recouping that cost, the, the pharmaceutical companies will never you know, make a commitment uh, to do that, to do the work, to provide the drug uh, as an approved drug for, uh, for a minor species. So that gives you some idea of the, of, the, of the cost creep over the last 40 years. And it's all because of the things that Amy and, uh, and Ron have, have mentioned. We're, we're held to a much, much higher standard. The equipment is more sophisticated and there is more chance for, uh, <laughs> cost overruns. 
tremendous number of challenges with cost, with expertise, with the capacity of our labs to do these, these kinds of studies. Um, but the bottom line is I, I, I kind of like, I kind of like shrimp and I, <laughs> and, and the whole wild caught thing is a challenge when we're looking at our, at our ocean populations of some of those species. And, um, so certainly farm raised is a great option and being able to do that, we need to be able to manage that, uh, that uh, uh, livestock, let's call it. You know, I think, uh, uh, Amy, you even worked with, uh, with honeybees and, and some of the things that we're doing in, in uh, managing that, uh, that species, a, a six-legged livestock, so to speak. There you go, that's right. <laughs> All so right, so... Um, Rod, you were going to say? Yeah, so can I come back to the, the just the GLP studies for one more second? It's like I could not do those studies here if I didn't have the, the support of not only the lab animal veterinarians, but the, the veterinary diagnostic lab. There's a state lab um, that's right here at the veterinary college and they have a quality assurance person. So that person inspects the work that I do while I'm doing it, as I write it up, even before when I have to write the, write the protocol to get that concurred by the FDA. It's like, I have, I have histology people that follow GLP. I like, I have that kind of support and that's the only way that I could be involved with these studies if I didn't have all of those people sort of behind me, supporting me and watch, you know, looking over my shoulder, basically. Yeah, and I, I think I, maybe I, I misrepresented a little bit. It, it's not about the one person that, that does the work. It's about the team of people that you have behind you that do the different elements of the work. Um, I mean, in some respects, what we're talking about is that one lead investigator that can put the team together and coordinate the study. But they're probably not going to be able to do every piece of what they need to do for the, for the project. And when you mentioned that one uh, individual that follows the compliance and, and uh, makes sure that your GLP is up to standards, um, those individuals get taxed pretty hard on, on the, for their time uh, in, their, in their compliance roles at the universities. So again, some of these situations we're dealing with, we're thin on the people that it takes to do the job from exactly. top to bottom. So um, I think we're wrapping up here and I'd just ask uh, each of you if you had anything you'd like to add to uh, your story about uh, the minor use animal drug program. And, and uh, um, we look forward to having can, uh, some additional uh, uh, conversation here. Uh, Tim, you were, you were wondering about maybe asking, asking Rod a question. I maybe, I, I hope I haven't gotten this so far out of sequence. Yeah, that was, that was pretty far back. And we were talking about we were talking about blackhead virus when I when I brought that up. And what I was going to ask Ron is, in countries other than the U.S., you talked about not having a drug. They lost their drug to treat blackhead in in Europe or some of the other uh, countries. Do they still have a drug that they can use to treat blackhead? was what I was going to ask. And that was sort of a lead into something that I was going to say as one of my last points. So is there, do you have That's, an answer for that, Ron? Uh, that will vary with the country. Uh, we have a lot of examples of uh, 
uh, not just blackhead, but other drugs that are available in other countries and the, uh, the regulatory and the, um, the proof of whether something is safe and effective is not necessarily as rigorous. Even in yeah. Europe, we can't just adopt those studies. A blackhead is a parasite um, uh, basically related to a coccidia type of thing. But uh, um, we banned, the US banned our cynicals here a number of years ago. And that was the last drug that we had that we could use for um, blackhead and turkeys. Uh, metronidazole is also approved in other countries uh, for that uh, therapeutic use. When we don't have that, that was taken off the market as well. So uh, there's nothing available. We just have to make sure we don't raise turkeys on the same ground every any more frequently than four years. Because that's- but Ron, I think you make a really good point about the about different countries having different standards because that, that influences our trade issues uh, for residues that we might have or, or things like that. So- Yeah, uh, there's a, a product for, called um, Regulin that's used routinely in Europe. And it's uh, basically just an implant with melatonin. Well, melatonin, people over in the U.S. take it as a sleep aid. So what's the human food safety issue with that if you're taking it as a drug on your own, own turf? But so in Europe, they didn't even do the, the uh, human food safety studies. There was no sense in it because they were using it and humans were dosing themselves with it. So they skipped that portion of the study, whereas we're required to do that over here. But so Tim, did you have a follow-up there? Go ahead, Amy. Well, I just wanted to bring up a point about the the, the trade issue that, that you spoke to, and that you know the the products that this program is attempting to get approved do impact all the producers in terms of their ability to export products because a lot of their competitors and let's use sheep as an example in in Australia and the UK they have access to these products. And so they are, you know, at a competitive disadvantage because they don't have those products to keep themselves, the U.S. producers don't have those products to keep themselves competitive and, you know, with on those world markets. So that's another piece I think we haven't maybe touched on, but it's a really important part yeah. of the program as well. So that's, so that's two ways. It's our export. It's our, it, it's their, our competitiveness. It's, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. I think there, there are so many elements of, the production system as we start considering uh, uh, trade in particular that uh, that really expand the the uh, number of topics that we have to be dealing with. So Tim, you had a follow-up, I think. Well, Amy just answered. So I was I wanted to, to make sure that we talked a little bit about the value of the program in ensuring competitiveness for US producers. And the other point, I said I sort of had two points that I wanted to end with. That was one. And the other was that when we think about minor species, one of the things that I think is really valuable for, for what this group does is that a lot of the folks that engage in production of minor use or, or minor species are underrepresented groups in, in U.S. agriculture. Uh, and this group really benefits them and establishes some equity by providing resources for what are maybe historically somewhat disadvantaged groups in production. 
And I think that that's a really valuable thing and allowing those people to have more options to drive their success. So that's, that's what, what I was going to sort of touch on at the end is that that's a real think, benefit that, that they don't have otherwise. And I think that's a great point that when we look at some of our, our bigger sheep and goat programs in the land grant university system, they're located at our 1890 uh, institutions are historically black uh, land grant universities um, and associated with some of the small farm programs that are that are housed there that's not exclusively where sheep and goat programs are but there seem to be a greater emphasis at, at many of those institutions so yeah i think that's a great point um any other closing comments that you might like to share well i'd just like to close with uh, sort of redefining the term minor you know we kicked that around you know, for the last hour uh, but if you look at the economics, uh, farm gate revenues from these minor species is over $5 billion, uh, approximately $5.5 billion. Uh, but the impact on the gross domestic product is, is over $50 billion. So the term minor uh, may be a, a mis, mis, misleading to the extreme. Well, and we're certainly talking about some high value products uh, that are that are coming through. And the same is true on the on the crop side with the specialty crops, uh, often a higher value than at Farmgate than we're looking at for some of the some of the major uh, major commodities. So I, I think that's a that's a great point, John. And certainly I'm not going to walk up to a bison and tell them that they're minor. <laughs> Any the other closing comments. Well, I, I just want to just reemphasize that, unfortunately, there's there's really no, the pharmaceutical companies really are not going to be doing this work. And so this program steps into a space where there's really a need and provides that service to U.S. producers, U.S. agriculture, people who consume these products. And, and speaking as a veterinarian, as to veterinarians who need these products to be able to keep the animals in their care safe and, you know, and, and healthy. So... Um, I think the program does a tremendous amount of great work and I can't say enough how much the FDA supports the work of the program. You know, it's all about tools in the toolbox and there's nothing more frustrating than to be confronted with a situation where you have to say, I've got nothing to help with this. And, um, you know, that is, that is a concern when you're talking to the, to the producer, but it's also a concern when you're thinking about um, their profitability and their ability to, to stay in business. Uh, if we want to have these, these types of, of commodities, these, these types of, of ornamentals, um, we need to have a, pro a program to be able to manage the, the challenges that we're, we're faced with them. So, hey, I want to thank you all for, for joining us today on this Tactical Sciences uh, Network podcast. Um, we're out to try and help people understand the programs that fall into the tactical sciences. And I think this conversation we've had today gives a great picture of the breadth of the minor use animal drug program and a better understanding of minor use and minor species. So I thank you all for joining us today.